This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. That's us, Communication Mixdown. I'm Stefan Schutt with John Langer on panel. Tonight we explore the concept of the music city. What is it, how it's used and what sits behind the name. As part of that, we'll look at our very own hometown of Melbourne, a city that's often been called one of the world's premier music cities. Joining us tonight are two media experts currently researching Melbourne as a music city. Shane Homan works in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University with a special interest in music policy, the cultural industries and cultural histories. And Catherine Strong is from the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University. And her recent research looks at the issue of cultural memory and gender in Australian popular music. Welcome to Communication Mixdown, Catherine and Shane. Thank you very much. So first up, the term music city. What is it and where did it come from? Um, well, I think it's originally um, derived from tourism. Um, so you had cities like Nashville, Memphis, Austin, and even for classical music, Vienna. So those kind of cities first um, drew up um, strategies and campaigns around how, how can we attract more tourists to our, to our city, um, principally around live music particularly streets which had deep heritage, you know, whether recording, studios, retail or live venues. Um, and then you got this kind of the second wave, which was Liverpool, Austin, Glasgow, those kinds of international cities, which then said, OK, how can we use popular music to regenerate? So if our downtown's kind of fallen out of favour, um, we've got kind of areas which are really down in the dumps. How can we use popular music as a kind of cultural industry to regenerate? Yep. So yeah. places that... Are seen as being just really, really strong centres of music. So we're sent, music becomes central to the life of the city and it's something that uh, if people were to think, where do we go? If we want to see music, if we want to hear music, if we want to, to, to find out where music is being created, those are the places that people think of. Yep. Great. And moving on from that, let's talk about Melbourne. So Melbourne's often been called one of the world's music cities. Does the reality match up with the rhetoric, do you think? The recent music census that was conducted um, by Music Victoria and the uh, Victorian government um, has actually come up with some, some statistics that support the idea that Melbourne is, I mean, they are claiming actually the premier music city in the world. Really? Um, so one of the things that they found was that the, that Melbourne has a live music venue for every 9,500 residents. And this compares to places like London that has one per 34,000 residents um, or New York that has one every 18,000 
thousand residents, and, and they are some of the places that are really thought of as being very strong in this area. Um, so this this statistic would seem to really support the idea that that Melbourne is is very very strong when it comes to live music in particular. Um, and they also talked about it creating about eighteen thousand part time jobs in the state as well. So so we do actually have some evidence that supports the idea that Melbourne is premier in this area. Do you have any thoughts why that might be? I think historically you've got to look, you've got to look at um, things like um, planning laws. Melbourne's been ahead of the game in terms of, if you compare it to, say, Sydney or Brisbane or Perth or Adelaide or Hobart, they've been well ahead of the game in terms of, if you take the laneways policy, for example, that um, encourages very quirky, funky, small-scale retail. That also applies to bars. So you've got the small bar thing happening in Melbourne well before Sydney, for example. Sydney's trying to catch up with that now. Um, you also look at pretty much um, also things like flexible licensing laws. So even though six o'clock closing didn't finish in Melbourne until 1966, they've kind of well caught up. There was a series of reforms from the mid-80s which put Melbourne ahead of the game again in terms of trading hours, um, looking after uh, music venues. Noise is a, is a separate issue, of course, but I think just in broad planning and licensing terms, Melbourne's always been ahead of the game. And it still is now, it seems. So uh, it's, it's interesting to to get the historical context in that too. One thing that I've always wondered about was uh, the factor of the number of old pubs. Uh, Melbourne having that kind of um, history as a kind of boom-bust city, especially with the, the gold boom and, and all the old buildings that were pubs around. Do you think that might have played a factor as well? Um, well, yeah. I mean, again, this comes down to planning. Sydney was very good in the 60s at demolishing their older heritage buildings, including pubs and, and um, nightclub structures. Melbourne did a very good job of actually holding on to that, that key infrastructure. And, um, in fact, if you look at the 60s, some of the best nightclubs happening in town in the CBD of Melbourne were actually you know, reconverted older kind of art deco places, for example. So they've done a very good job of holding on to that infrastructure, I think. Hmm. And what about the social aspects of... Um of uh, the music city for Melbourne, do you think there's something particularly going on in the city that lends itself to people being passionate about live music compared to maybe other cities? Or um, is it the same, you know, in most other cities around the world, just the infrastructures and the licensing is better in Melbourne? Well, yeah, all of those, the, the infrastructure and the licensing definitely plays a factor. Um, I think, though, there is a thing that happens where an identity starts to build up around the idea of music being central to the life of a city. Um, and uh, the, the small-scale scenes that emerge are really important in this regard. So each of the, the pubs that exist around the place that really supports live music, um, they will start to develop their own little identity and people who feel as though they belong in those particular places will converge in those areas. And the way that those smaller venues um, and the scenes that develop around them become the uh, the hatching ground really for for so much of then uh, uh, so much stuff that then goes on to create a, a larger music scene and then an, a national music scene and then feeds into international music scene that stuff is really important um so the supporting of those really small venues uh lays the groundwork for everything bigger that then comes from from that right yeah. And um, just thinking about your research, because you're doing an Australian Research Council project about the music city at the moment, uh, which investigates Melbourne as a music city, what sort of methods do you use and what do you look for and what do you map in establishing music citydom? Um, we've had great fun actually interviewing musicians, basically from the 1950s onwards. 
So, for example, it's been great fun interviewing people who were playing town halls in 1957, um, <clears throat> playing you know, pubs in 1960s. Um, so we matched those interviews with kind of archival trawling. So going through things like the Go Set magazines, um, <clears throat> looking at gig guides, for example. So we're doing kind of quantitative stuff around how many venues did Melbourne have in a particular decade, for example, what were the key ones, and then matching that with people's stories and saying, okay, what were your experiences of actually playing there or seeing a band? Um, and we're also matching that with planning infrastructure and licensing laws. So we're matching policy, if you like, with what people were doing on the ground. Right. Yep. So a big part of the evolution of Melbourne's popular scene has been what's called the agent of change principle. And you touched on it um, sort of before a little bit, but can you explain what this is, how it's played out in Melbourne and the influence that idea has had in other cities? Okay, so the the agent of change is basically the idea that um, when it comes to noise, whoever comes second, whoever turns up next, like after other people are already established there, is responsible for the consequences of that noise. So if you have um, a pub or a venue uh, that is already established and people have been playing there for a long time, if a developer comes along and they want to put in a huge tower block of apartments, um, then it's up to the developer to make sure that the people in those apartments aren't going to be upset by the amount of noise that comes out of the venue and vice versa. If there are already pre-existing dwellings, um, then if someone wants to come in and, and put in a venue, they have to make sure that the people aren't going to be disturbed by by the noise that comes out of there. Um, and this is something that people are talking about because there has been a, a history, uh, not just in Melbourne, but in a lot of cities, um, of really vibrant live music scenes being shut down or really being curtailed uh, because development starts to happen. So, so what we see is gentrification, which is where um, uh, areas of cities that have been um, a bit disused or underdeveloped um, will develop a, a strong creative life. And as a result of that, they start to draw in people who then want to live there because it is cool in those ways. Um, and the result of that is then that people start building houses next to venues and then the venues get shut down. And so what was good about that area starts to disappear. And people don't want that to happen. So so this discussion around how you make sure um, that people can live in these cool areas but that the, the area doesn't become just just dwellings and nothing else uh, has, has led to this discussion about legislation that, that protects venues. Yeah, and it's, it's partly... <clears throat> funnily enough, it's, it's, it's a problem where in terms of gentrification and regeneration, you know, if you want to... <clears throat> improve a particular area of downtown you say well we need a funky middle class but then the funky middle class moves in then you've got a problem saying we've got a funky middle class which is now complaining about noise so in some cases the gentrification around particular live music sectors or districts or precincts if you like has become too successful and that leads to either musicians taking flight into poor areas because they simply can't afford to live around those areas anymore because you see a rise in retail rents and housing rents um, but you also get, yeah, as Kath, Kath said, you, you get that sense of, um, I want the vibrancy just, just as long as it's not in my street. And has there been um, an impact of that in other cities based on the Melbourne experience? I, I noticed something in the news the other day that some cities in, in England are now taking on some of this, these same principles. Yep. Um, Boris Johnson, when he was Mayor of London, commissioned a report. Um, the London Live Music Task Force actually said they lost something like 500 venues over a four-year period. Um, they are now looking at in- in- instigating agent of change, so di- directly copying the Melbourne legislation. 
Um, Edinburgh and Glasgow are also talking about doing the same. So I know it's got some global traction. It seems such a simple, obvious answer and a premise, but it's very hard to institute in practice. Great. Thanks very much. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this DJ gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump. Now, in other cities that have been labelled music cities around the world, such as Nashville or Austin, the music scene's been linked to narratives around economic growth and has been used to promote business growth in those cities, as, as you mentioned before. And based on the interviews that you've done with, with people in the industry, how do you think musicians and the people who work with them, the venue owners, the agencies, the, the booking agents, that kind of thing, have fared when those labels are applied to a particular place? Not necessarily all that well in in ways that you might think would flow from a place being labelled as, as a music city. Um, so clearly there are benefits. So so if the census that we were just talking about is right, then a lot of people are going through venues. A lot of people um, as well seem to be coming to Melbourne to experience live music. Um, so we know from that census and from other data that's been collected that, uh, that about one4 million billion sorry dollars um, goes through the live music sector in some way or another um, so it's a big contributor to the Victorian economy but we also know that musicians on average earn about eleven thousand um, dollars from being musicians in any given year so they they are the people who it would seem are seeing the least benefit from this apparently hugely profitable industry. So tourism might be doing well out of it. Um, some venues might be doing well out of it, but it's really important to acknowledge that a lot of the small venues are only just surviving day to day so that they're, they're living um, uh, from bill to bill. Um, so a lot of the people who contribute to building this idea of the live music, of the, of the music city, um, aren't benefiting from it in really substantial ways. So who is benefiting benefiting from it. You mentioned tourism possibly and possibly the real estate industry. Are, are there any other beneficiaries of that that change um, that, that do benefit from it? I think it's, it's one of those things that gets distributed quite unequally. So some bands will do really well, but there's a very small proportion of musicians who manage to really make a living and become very profitable, um, especially in the, music, in the Australian music industry. Like often people who even have very good careers um, still find themselves not in great financial situations later on down the track. Um, and again, some venues do very, very well out of it as well. Um, who else do you think, Shane? Who, who else is getting the money? Um, well, the alcohol industry. Uh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have thought of that. Yes. Um, yeah. The the stalwart um, really of, of 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 the live scene in many ways, isn't it? Um, so I'd like to explore some of the changes that have occurred in our own music scene in Melbourne over the last decades, particularly since the eighties, um, and particularly in terms of shifting or refiguring gender relations. What are your thoughts on that? Because there's been a lot of talk about that lately. Yeah, there has been a lot of talk, a lot of very interesting things going on in that space. Um, 
So one of the things I've been doing as part of our project is going through all the old music magazines and one of the things I've been looking at is whether women are in there and if so, what they're doing and how they're represented. Um, and it did take a long time for women to really appear in the music magazines in much more than a very decorative role, I think. Um, but uh, since the 1980s, we definitely have seen an increase in women as musicians and and um, participating in the music scene in a whole bunch of different ways. It's still definitely not anything close to being equal, um, which we know through a variety of different studies that people have done. Um, but it's getting a lot better and um, has uh, shifted as well uh, in, in that women are definitely taken more seriously or spoken about more seriously as musicians as opposed to more of a focus on appearance or um, other more trivial things. So, so back in the 1960s, if a woman was being interviewed, um, there would be something like that she would be taken on a shopping trip and the interview would document her shopping trip and how she, you know, liked to buy pretty things for herself. And that, that sort of like quite demeaning framing of women is, is certainly disappearing. And uh, um, in terms of some of the things that have been brought up around um, sexual harassment, some of those issues that have come out in the music industry too lately, have you noticed a lot of conversation going on around those issues? Yes, definitely. Um, uh, I think that it's been true for a long time in the music industry that um, abuse has been in a lot of ways normalised. So one of the perks of being in the music industry for a lot of men has been the fact that you get access to women and that often you are... Um, it's okay to behave quite badly around women. Uh, that whole sort of sex, drugs and rock and roll culture um, has often had an underlying element of um, just really bad behaviour associated with it. And I think it's only very recently that we've started to reframe some of those things in a way that that sees it as abuse rather than just, oh, boys will be boys or oh, that's just what happens or oh, that's just him. Um, so that's a really positive change. Um the effect that it will have in the long run will be interesting to see because even though we have been seeing some people being called out and so there was a, a case just last week where uh, an American rapper called Riff Raff was going to tour and his tour was cancelled at the last minute because um, a woman came forward and said that he had sexually assaulted her last time he was in the country. So venues like The Corner cancelled their booking of him and... Um, um, so that really immediate consequence, um, if that is the sort of thing that happens to men who are abusive, then that's a really positive step forward. But at the same time, we also know um, that there are a lot of people who are still in positions of power and influence in the Australian music industry who people know. You hear the stories, the anecdotes flow around, people warn each other off these particular people, but people still don't feel like they're in a position where they can publicly say anything about it. So it will take a long time, I think, for everybody who needs to be held accountable to be held accountable. And do you think um, uh, social media and uh, some of those forms of media have played a part in, in changing that dynamic over the over the last, say, 20 years or so? Absolutely, yes. So social media has given women a forum where they can say things that otherwise would have been very hard to say and, and be put on a public platform. And what it has allowed to happen is that when people say something, other people can come forward as well and say, oh, that was me too. So, so that's exactly what happened with Harvey Weinstein is that one person or a few people spoke out and then a lot of other people said, oh, yeah, actually, that guy has been doing that thing for a long time. Um, and I think having that mass of voices often makes it easier for a public 
that has been essentially conditioned to disbelieve women when they say these sorts of things, um, it makes what they say sound more credible. Uh, as, as much as I would like not like it for it to be the case that people that women have to somehow be given this credibility, they should just be believed. But it's often not the case. So social media gives people a place where they can go and find other people who will believe them and support them in in coming forward about these things. Great. Now, as a final question, um, I'd like you to think of yourself twenty years down the track. What do you think Melbourne's music scene will look like then? in 20 years from now? Wow. Big question. <clears throat> I would hope that it would still be having, it would still have a, a great smattering of very small venues, um, that you know, very pokey bars. So I've been banging on for 20 years about the fact that I think we need to keep music scenes as kind of transgressive. So not, not the kind of aggressive um, gender kind of landscapes Kath just talked about, but transgression by... Having doing something different in terms of genre, doing something different in terms of stage performances, um, still having that sense that when you have a night out, that it could be different from your everyday life. So I think that's a battle for governments around the world and for city councils. How do I? How do we keep the organic, transgressive nature of, say, a live music venue or an indie record label or a particular studio? How do we keep that kind of nitty gritty in the system, and we don't sanitize it and just kind of make it, make it touristic, if you like? So I would hope that Melbourne would keep keep that sense of that balance between you know you've got the shiny touristic venues, you've got your Hamer halls, but I would hope that um, policies and strategies would still be in place to ensure those the small scale is still taken care of. Mm. And and where do you think those venues will be in twenty years from now? Any thoughts? Well, they could be in your lounge room. Yep, I mean, they already are, aren't they? With the, some of the house gigs that are going on at the moment. Yep, I mean that that that, that could go big. Yep, maybe. Some of the same venues as are here now would be nice to have that continuity. Like those exact same spaces would be good. Um, I would hope that in 20 years from now we do find a way um, to address the inequality that exists in the music industry. So to get musicians paid for what they do in a way that makes it easy for them to sustain their creative output, to, for them to really just ex- exist in a way that makes them artists, like proper artists, without having to worry about working two part-time jobs at the same time. Um, I think that what could emerge artistically in a situation like that could be really, really incredible. So, Great. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. So thank you so much, Shane and Catherine, for joining us on Communication Mixdown. Thank you. Thank that, you. <laughs> yeah. that, was, um, that was Shane Homan and Catherine Strong talking about the idea of music cities and Melbourne's role as a global music hub. If you want more information, the, the uh, Communication Mixdown website will have a range of relevant links and the podcast of this show will be up shortly. And don't forget, 3CR Radiothon is coming up next week, so dig deep and donate to keep 3CR and Communication Mixdown on air for another year. So that's it for Communication Mixdown this week. We're here next Thursday for Radiothon.